right? An, an expectation that Jesus is coming. Notice how John says when he appears, not if he appears, but when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him. So there's this expectation for the believers to be prepared, right? To be ready to expect his coming. And I want to spend some time sitting with this point because at the end, whether it's the end of your life or the end of this age as we know it, there is an, what, what is it that we are expecting? What is it that we are expecting? Is there an anticipation of his coming, you know, I've shared before that whenever I do mazes, I work backwards because for some reason that just helps me uh, get to the front easier and I, I can kind of see the whole picture. And so there's this idea of looking at the end in order to complete the process. How you, you go about the maze is determined by the end. Or if you're building furniture. Now, I don't know about you. I, I'm not really an instructions guy. Um, I look at the picture and I try to build the furniture based on how it looks. And, you know, word of advice, you should probably look at the instructions. Um, but I know some of you are like that too. You're like, ah, you know, it l- looks easy, right? Especially the Ikea furniture and something always goes wrong. But at the very least, when you look at the picture and you're building this furniture, you know what you're working towards, right? You know what it is you're trying to build so that when you put a wrong piece in or something doesn't look right, you can analyze and go, you know what? That doesn't look right. And then you go and make the adjustment, right? You should go back to the instruction and actually look at what's going on. But the, my point is that we look at the end and we examine it and then we analyze where we've gone wrong, right? What areas we've put in the wrong piece or placed at the you know, wrong angle. Um, and so the end is what we need to look at and examine so that we know what we're expecting. What is it that we are expecting? What is it we're longing for? What is it that we're anticipating? That ought to inform us on how we build our life. That informs us on how to be ready, how to prepare ourselves, so that when we make wrong decisions and wrong turns in life, which all of us will, all of us will make wrong decisions and wrong turns in our lives, but we can look at it and examine it and say, you know what, that doesn't really look right. I need to make some adjustments here. Paul talks about this in 2 Timothy And as he's coming to the end of his ministry, he recognizes that his end is near. And this is what he says. He says, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, and I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. See, because Paul lived with an expectation that he would see the Lord, the righteous judge, he lived in such a way where he could say, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. He went through life, he made adjustments, he positioned himself from that expectation. And what we see here is he's also expecting the reward, right? He's expecting the crown of righteousness that was to be awarded to him on that final day, and that influenced the decisions that he made in his life. That influenced the adjustments that he made uh, and how he decided to live his life. And brothers and sisters, as we look at that passage, that expectation, Paul says, is not just for me, but for all those who live uh, in a way that longs for his appearing, uh, appearing. All those who live in such a way that expects Jesus to come. Uh, a couple weeks ago, we had a, a missions conference for uh, uh, our, our family of churches called Axe Ministries International, um, and, and many of us attended, uh, but we heard an interview about the ministry that is in Coban, Guatemala, and we had Pastor John, uh, uh, the missionary who's there, come and share about the school and the church a few weeks ago, uh, but what many of you might not, not know is that it was almost entirely funded uh, by one of the elders at our sister church in New York. 
Now, he was a very successful businessman. He was nearing retirement, and he had every right, according to the world's standards, to take his millions, to relax, be comfortable, and enjoy retirement. The world says, take your millions and relax. You made the right decisions in life. You made the right business moves in order to, to garner this wealth. Now go and enjoy. But instead, this elder took his millions and he purchased acres of fields uh, in the land uh, in Koban to build this international school, to build this church, to reach the underprivileged communities up in Koban uh, where, where education stops in fifth grade. Uh, and he, he had a vision to, to, to lift this population, this com- community. And instead of moving somewhere where he could be comfortable, he moved to this very rural and remote place in order to oversee the construction. And personally, I was just convicted by the story, by his faith, his vision, his obedience, because I know I sometimes lose sight of the end. I know sometimes I don't, I don't know where I'm headed because I lose sight of what I am to expect, what I ought to be looking forward to. You know, some of us may look at him and we might applaud him for the amount of sacrifice that he made. And certainly from uh, a, a, a worldly perspective, indeed, he has sacrificed a lot. But I think from heaven's perspective, he's simply living with the right expectation. He's expecting the appearance of Jesus. He's expecting the crown of righteousness that will be rewarded to him on that day. He's expecting to hear from his master, well done, good and faithful service, uh, servant, now enter into your master's rest. He's expecting the day of accounting that Jesus talks about in his parables where God is going to bring the servants, bring all of the people and say, what did you do with what I have stewarded under your care? See, John's letters, Paul's letters, Jesus' parables, they all have an eschatological component to it. There's a, an expectation of the end. Even when you look at the Bible, the, the story of God, there is a beginning and there is an end. There's something that we are approaching, something that we look towards in the end that informs how we ought to live right now. See, when Jesus talked about the kingdom of God, he didn't kind of spell everything out, this is what you ought to do, X, Y, and Z, but he talked about the kingdom in a way where this is what it's like, this is what you ought to expect, this is how you live in order to achieve this end. And here again we see John that's built into the command of continuing in him, it's this expectation he is going to appear. So John, he's saying, abide in him, remain in him, continue in him. Why? So that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. And that's for you and me. That's for the New Testament believer that built into our faith is this longing for the second coming of Jesus, the appearance of Jesus, the fullness of the kingdom of God when the king returns and the fullness of his kingdom comes. We understand that this world is not our final destination that we are passing through. Last week we talked about how we are in this world, but we are not of this world. And so we cannot forget the very end to which we are traveling, that we become so infatuated and comfortable with the counterfeit gods of our society. And that is such a challenge to live out, isn't it? You know, when I was in high school, I used to think, I want Jesus to come back, but not right away. There's so much of life I still have yet to experience. I want to get married, I want to have kids, I want to travel, I want to see the world. I want to do so many things. Because let's face it, if I were to say, I want Jesus to come back right now, essentially what I'd be saying is, I want the, the, the world or this age that we're living in uh, to come to an end uh, right now. And as a young believer, I know I was supposed to look forward to that, but there's a part of me that did not eagerly long for that. 
There was a part of me that understood the value of Jesus coming again. But there was a part of me that still wanted to enjoy the many things that I had not yet experienced in this world. And so I completely understand. I have conversations with college students, and they're like, yeah, I want Jesus to come back, but maybe not for a little while longer. And I totally understand that sentiment. But is it possible that we can enjoy the full breadth of our life here on this earth and at the very same time eagerly look forward to his appearance? I think it's possible. I think that's possible. You know, I was recently introduced to these two-by-two diagrams, and uh, they're a great way of explaining kind of the tension of the both and, right? The radical middle, we sometimes call it. Uh, and so I want to use this, um, this graph or this grid to, to explain how we can hold on to this tension of both. All right, so on the y-axis, I mean, if you still remember, the, this is the y-axis, right, the vertical. On the y-axis, we have a, v, a view of the, the pleasures of this world, or the view of this world. And on the x-axis, we have a view of the coming kingdom. From a low view uh, going to a high view for the y-axis going up, and then from left to right. Now, when we have a high view of the pleasures of the world and a low view of the coming ki- kingdom, then we become hedonistic. What that means is we just pursue pleasure, the self-pleasure, whatever's self-gratifying or fulfilling. Those are the things that we pursue because we have a high view of the world and low view of the kingdom. When we have a high view of the kingdom but a low view of this world, we become monastic, right? We withdraw and we just have this distorted view of creation, of God's creation. We're like, you know what? All of that is wicked. It's evil. It's passing away. So I need to stay away from it. And then we become very monastic. If we have a low view of the kingdom and a low view of this world, we become nihilistic where we just, say, we just throw our hands up and say, everything is meaningless. Right? Everything is useless. You know, there, there's nothing good in this world. And so we fall into these different uh, potential pitfalls. But what we want to do is we want to have a high view of the kingdom, of the coming kingdom, and we want to have a high view of the pleasures of this world. Because that puts us in a position to really enjoy God's creation, believing this is our Father's world, that we are his beloved, that we can enjoy the joy and pleasures of this world, but having a high view of the coming kingdom also puts us in a position where we can say, if I have already experienced the pleasures of this world and I understand it's merely a shadow of the coming glory of the kingdom, then I cannot wait until the fullness of his kingdom comes here on this earth where sin is no more where death is no more, where the fullness of his glory fills the whole earth. And I think that creates a yearning, a a longing inside of us for his appearance. See, I think the problem is we don't have an imagination for what is to come. We cannot picture what the the coming kingdom is like, and so we just latch on. We have tunnel vision for what we can enjoy or have pleasure in this lifetime. But brothers and sisters, we need to have a greater imagination of the beauty and the glory of the return of Jesus and that's hard. That's hard to really picture. That, that is something we need to step out in faith as well. That the kingdom of God is at hand and it will come in its fullness when Jesus returns. So we have to live with that expectation that Jesus will appear. And in light of that expectation, in light of that reality, how do we live our lives? We continue in him. We abide in him. We make adjustments at the twists and turns of life that lead us away from this reality. And so ask yourself, how is it that I'm living my life expecting Jesus to return? If you were to just put a date and say, I'm coming back here, how would you change the way you live your life? 
I wanted to start out this morning talking about this expectation, just this one verse, this expectation, because I think that expectation informs how we live our lives and the decisions we make, the the time that we have, the resources that are stewarded under our care. And I want to set this as a framework for us because I think it touches on the crux of this morning's sermon. The two things I'm going to talk about is, as we become like Jesus, why we ought to live a life of holiness, and as we become like Jesus, why we ought to love one another. And it's with this expectation that he is coming that we move forward in these two areas. Now, John, um, you know, once again, he's bringing us back to these points. And if you remember, John uses a style of writing called amplification, right? He has not many points, just a few points, but he kind of weaves in and out of it, coming at it at different angles, at different intensities in order to make his point. And so this morning, we're going to be focusing on holiness and on loving one another. And he's bringing us back to attention on uh, on on a life of holiness. So, As we continue in our passage, we see John boast about the fact that we are called children of God. He says, we are children of God. In John's gospel, John chapter 1, verse 12 to 13 says, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. And here he's saying, we are children of God. Those who believe in his name have been given the right to become children a child of God. Now we can go into another sermon on adoption, but this idea of adoption, essentially all the resources that belong to the parents now belong to the adopted child. I mean, if you talk to adoptive parents, uh, they have the same desires and dreams and care for these adopted children. They, they, ha- they want to give them a hope and a future. They pour out the same amount of love and resources to their children. And John is saying, listen, you and I, we have become children of God. We have access to heaven's resources because we are children of God. You know, a lot of us would take that for granted, but it's like John would grab you and me and say, don't forget, this is your identity. You are a child of God. You have the right to become a child of God. But here's the thing. He says, not only does this give you access to the Father as a child of God, but it it also reminds us that you ought to become like the Father. You ought to become like him. There's this expectation that when Christ appears, we will be like him because we will see him fully and completely as he is. And that doesn't mean it's exclusively a future thing, right, where all of a sudden we become like him. But rather, I think what it's saying is the moment you become a child of God, you are on a journey of becoming more like him. When, you, when your identity has been placed as a child of God, you are on this track towards becoming like him. So the right expectation is in my journey of faith, my cooperation with what the Holy Spirit is doing in and through me launches me towards Christ-likeness. That even though in this lifetime I'm going to struggle, I'm going to stumble, but I am on a trajectory to becoming more like him. And this expectation comes again because you and I are children of God. I am a child of God. And John makes sure we know this first, that this is our identity. Now, I think this was definitely easier for the first century Jewish reader because um, in, in, that, in, in their day and age, you just became what your father was, right? In our day and age, we, you know, we, we just have 
different opportunities. Uh, many of us can become, you know, whatever profession we desire to go towards. And, you know, especially also with uh, just a weak family unit, um, there's, a, there's, it's hard to wrap our minds around this fact that we will just become like our parents. But here in the, in the first century uh, Jewish culture, uh, many of them were apprentices of their father, right? They simply did what their father did. So if their father was a fisherman, they became a fisherman. If their father was a carpenter, they became a carpenter. If their father was a farmer, they became a father. And you get this idea, there's a direct correlation between who you are becoming uh, with the image of your father. You are becoming like your father. So that's the idea here, right? As children of God, we ought to become more and more like him until the fullness of that reality when Jesus comes and we see him face to face, uh, that the, the completion is there. You know, I forget who said this, but there's this quote I'm reminded of, uh, I'm reminded of that says, I'm not who you think I am. I'm, I'm not who I think I am. I'm who you think that I am, okay? I'm not who you think I am. I'm not who I think I am. I am who I think you think I am. And then someone took it a step further and said, actually, I am who the most important person in my life thinks I am. That we kind of conform to what we think the most important person in our life thinks we are. And so if I could put it that way, uh, who is the most important person in your life? Because we realize we are conforming into a particular image. And John is making this point that that person is God. That as children of God, we ought to be conforming into his likeness. That the Holy Spirit is doing a work inside of us where we are becoming more and more like him. That's the process uh, of what we call sanctification. Right? It's a trajectory. It's not just about the day-to-day -day interactions that we have, but it's the direction of who you are becoming. And that should be the case for all of us. Are we becoming more and more like him? When we see him in that day, in the fullness of his glory, John says, you will be like him because you are already in the process of becoming like him. Now, here's where John gets very black and white. He says, he seems to suggest you cannot be a child of God if you're not becoming like him. Okay, keep in mind this context of John's letter. He's writing because he's refuting this claim that sin has no bearing on our lives. Um, there, again, this false teaching that sin has no bearing on our lives. You can do whatever you want without any consequences. As long as you have this secret knowledge, you are okay. So don't worry about what you're gonna do with your physical bodies. And John is refuting that claim. He's saying, how can you consider yourself a child of God uh, if you are not becoming like him in holiness, if you're not becoming like him, him in putting to death sin. And, the, and again, he's, he defines sin and he begins to explain this dichotomy. If it is impossible to continue in sin and consider yourself a child of God. Throughout John's letter, he says, don't deceive yourself. Many times he'll say, don't deceive yourself, uh, thinking you are a child of God and not becoming more like him. I recently heard a sermon about the lies we tell ourselves, and one of the things that has, has been powerful is understanding how we can become captive to the lies that we tell ourselves, right? The narratives that we form in our mind, the lies that we um, tell ourselves, and the, 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 thing, the scary thing is we actually start believing the lies that we tell ourselves that it becomes a reality for us that we can no longer discern between lie and truth. And when we are confronted about those lives, we actually recoil in fear or in disgust or in anger. And I think that's what Jesus experienced as well. In John chapter eight, Jesus is saying to the Jews, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth 
and the truth will set you free. He's talking to these Jews, and these Jews reply, what do you mean? We are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Now, as an outside observer looking in, this statement is remarkable because the Israelites have been a nation that has been enslaved more than has been free. They've been enslaved by the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Greek, and now they are under the rule of Rome. And that's not to mention that as they were being formed uh, as a king under King Saul, they were constantly being... um, you know, uh, being conquered or uh, dominated by their neighboring countries. And it's really incredible that they would believe this lie that they've never been slaves to anyone, but they are so steeped in this lie that they cannot understand what Jesus is getting at. And some of us may be so steeped in lies that we've told ourselves um, that we start to believe it as true. And it it becomes so hard to break that when we're confronted by it, we just kind of push it away. Verse 7, John says, Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he's righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Then, uh, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin, because God's seed remains in them. They cannot keep sinning. They cannot continue sinning without remorse, because they have been born of God. So why do we practice holiness? Why do we need to put sin to death? Why do we need to take sin so seriously? Because God has commanded us, be holy as I am holy. Be set apart as I am set apart. To become more like Jesus is to desire a life of godliness, of holiness. And I know in our day and age, to become more like Jesus and to do what he did tends to focus on loving others and having compassion and caring for uh, those who are hurting. And that's absolutely true. We need to become like that as well. But we cannot omit the reality that to become more like Jesus is to be holy as he is holy. To put to death the, the, the sin in our bodies, putting to death greed, Uh, pride, lust, anger, immorality, and being more and more characterized by the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You know, you've heard that Jesus came to take away our sins, and absolutely he has. Uh, He has come to justify us, to make atonement for our sins. But not just that, he has come to sanctify us, to purify us, to make us pure. And that's part and parcel of the gospel. He's making us more and more like him. So it's not just about your legal standing as innocent before God, but it's that you are becoming more like him. You're not continuing in sin and rebellion, but you're being shaped into the image of the Father. So first, we become like him in holiness. And second, uh, the second point is we become more like him in loving one another. Once again, John brings us back to this point of loving one another. Uh, Because of an expectation that Jesus is coming again, he says, this is is my command that you love one another. In fact, as we know, John says it's incompatible. You cannot hate your brother and sister and be in communion with Christ. And so John brings up this example of Cain and Abel that we find in Genesis 4. And in the story of Cain and Abel, we see these two brothers. They're bringing their offering unto the Lord. Cain brings some fruits as an offering, while Abel brings the fat portions from the firstborn of his flock. And I think we need to notice the detail here, uh, because the Lord looked at Abel's offering with favor, and he did not look at Abel's offering Uh, Cain's offering with favor and from the context that we see here the details that Abel is bringing the fat portion of the first fruit of his flock that detail is important Cain just brings some of the fruit of the field now it's not that God prefers 
meat, uh, animal sacrifice over produce, but we know that God is looking at the heart. He's looking at the heart that, that, uh, that Abel is bringing the best of whatever he is stewarding under his care, care unto God, whereas Cain just brings whatever he has. And anyways, uh, Cain is angry. He's downcast, and God actually confronts him and asks, why are you angry? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. You must overcome it. All right, so there's a temptation of sin that's waiting for us, but we must rule over it. But Cain doesn't turn from that place. He, he continues sulking, and from a place of anger and, and envy and jealousy and strife, he ultimately he lures his brother out to the field, and he kills Abel. Seems extreme, doesn't it? But I think it paints an accurate picture of the intensification of sin. Right? A seed of displeasure, a seed of envy, a seed of anger that seems so minuscule can actually travel down a trajectory and eventually explode in the form of murder. You know, one commentator points out that hatred can be active or passive. To hate our brother is to murder him in our hearts. Though we may not carry out the action through cowardice or fear of punishment, we wish that person dead. Or by ignoring another person, we may treat them as if they were dead. Hatred can be shown passively or actively. See, brothers and sisters, sometimes disdain towards others can feel so insignificant, but be wary of the potential it has to take hold of you. The command to love is simultaneously a command not to hate. It's simultaneously a command to forgive, to show mercy, to extend grace, and that's so difficult, isn't it? When we are offended, when we are hurt, we become defensive, and our natural reaction is fight or flight. It's to actively hate or to passively hate. We can attack them back, or we can ignore that person as if they were dead. But John is saying one of the characteristics of a follower of Jesus is that we would love one another. And he points this out. He says, the world, don't be surprised when the world hates us, because there's an entirely different worldview and paradigm and set of rules and principles that they are operating out of. But one of the marks of the believer ought to be love. Verse 14, John says, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Now, the natural, the natural laws that we observe in our life is that we pass from life to death, right? We are, we, as we age, we go from life to death. But what John is pointing out here is this uh, countercultural set of laws where we are passing from death to life. In other words, he's saying, for the born-again believer, for those of, those of you that have passed from death into life, this is the sign that assures you that you are born again when you love one another. Now, why love one another? Because we see the example of Jesus who laid down his life for us. And in the same way, he says, imitate him by laying down your life for your brothers and sisters. Like I mentioned earlier, we are becoming like Jesus in the way he loves. And we know our love is not perfect, but in our capacity and our ability to love, we are on this journey of being transformed into Christ-likeness in the way we love, that when we see him face-to-face, -face, our love will be completed. And that's the hope that we have. You know, my wife and I recently celebrated eight years of marriage, and uh, certainly feels much longer, but we had a challenging discussion on how hard it is to love one another. And we spent time just uh, trying to understand one another and communicate uh, with one another. And to be honest, with all the busyness of... Um, 
raising kids this past year from uh, just fatigue from work, uh, from COVID, and, and caring for Esther's mom, uh, at the end of most days when kids are down for bed, just feel exhausted, like there's nothing left in the tank. And I know many of you can relate. Just at the day, you just feel so exhausted. You don't really want to, like, work at it. And we're, we're realizing, wow, marriage, you need work on your marriage. You need to actually um, pour in a lot of time and investment to grow in loving one another. And I left that conversation feeling this sobering reality of why we need to be regularly reminded and encouraged to love one another. Because loving one another is so hard. To love one another as Jesus loved us is so hard. And it's humbling and challenging to consider how we fall short of that love towards our spouse or towards our children, towards our friends, towards our community. And yet we press on knowing that one of the highest aims in our life is the pursuit of maturity and love, capacity to love, our ability to love. See, I find it interesting that John uses the example of Cain and Abel as the example of hatred. And here he's juxtaposing this example of Cain and Abel with the example of Jesus, the love of Jesus. See, on the one hand, with Cain and Abel, the epitome of hatred, the exaggeration of hatred ends with murder, right? The death of another. In Jesus, we see the epitome of love, the exaggeration of love that ends with sacrifice, that Jesus would lay down his life in love, this death of self. And friends, isn't it hard to die to ourselves? Isn't it hard when, we, when we're in conflict with one another, when we're in argument, we don't want to die to ourselves. We, uh, you know, we don't want the actual person, I mean, maybe we don't want the act, other person to die, but we want to win. We don't want our, our, our pride or our ego or whatever it is that we are fighting about to die with us. We would rather, you know, beat the other person. But here John is saying, look at the example of Jesus. That out of this exaggeration of love, it led to it led to uh, death to himself, all for the sake of love. Hebrews chapter eleven verse twenty four tells us Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So we see the blood of Abel cries out to God, right? It cries out for judgment. It, it cries out for vengeance. Ultimately, it brings a curse upon Cain. But the, Jesus, the blood of Jesus also cries out to God. But it cries out for mercy. And ultimately, it brings a blessing upon us. And we are indebted to this love. That is the agape love that we have seen, one that loves even when there's nothing to be gained by it. We've experienced heaven's touch with this love. And we are to imitate this love. John's saying more and more, as you become more like Jesus, you ought to grow in this way of love. Becoming more and more Christ-like in the way you love one another. Verse 18 finally says, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. And it says, your love cannot simply uh, remain in words and speech. If it is not accompanied with actions or truth, it's nothing but fluff. It produces no fruit. John says, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person. And again, to put in context, John's talking about the household of God. He's not saying, again, that you shouldn't show love or care or compassion or charity towards others, but he's focusing on the household of God. So in a way, I almost can say he's kind of focusing on the community groups, right? In your community groups, if you see someone who's in need, maybe they don't have a material possession need, but they need your time, they need your care, they need your comfort. If you see it and you just back away, how can you say that you are loving he, basically, what I think he's saying is love is not just a feeling, 
but there's a tangible expression to love. There's a tangible expression to the way we ought to love. In the first part of our series in 1 John, we talked about the three tests, and I think John comes back to this as we uh, wrap up. The three litmus tests for the believer, belief, action, and love. So as we wrap up, let me just summarize it in a way that hopefully we can remember. John is calling us to a belief that leads to an action-packed love. We ought to have a belief that leads to an action-packed love. All right, we believe he's coming again to reign, that when he appears, not if he appears, but when he appears, we will see him and his kingdom, and we will become like him in the fullness of our reality. We believe in our identity as children of God, that we ought to become more and more like him in holiness and in love. Because we are children in God, we believe that Jesus has not only removed sin from our lives, but that he's transforming us, he's sanctifying us. We are in this process of putting to death sin and putting on the righteousness of Christ. And in becoming like him in love, we believe he's commanded us to love one another as he loved us. Jesus being the perfect example of that love so that we are to imitate the way he has demonstrated love for us. Worship team, come on back up. Uh, But let me just wrap up again by saying this. We need to have this right belief that leads to a right action that is couched in love. And brothers and sisters, let's not grow weary in pursuing the right belief and doing the right things that are all couched in love, that as we eagerly expect and long for the coming of Jesus, that we would continue and be steadfast in this. Why? So that we would be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. Amen? At this time, um, we're going to have our offering prayer, and then we're going to have a time of uh, um, uh, response.